0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's September 30th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. The 53rd New York Film Festival opened last weekend, and in the past few weeks we've been sharing some special archival episodes featuring some of the stars of this year's lineup. On today's episode, we're looking back to 2012, where filmmaker Michael Moore presented a revival screening of his feature debut, Roger and Me, which was an official selection at NYFF in 1989. Following the screening, Moore joined director of programming Richard Pena to talk about the film's lasting influence, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and his distinctive approach to documentary filmmaking. Moore's new film, Where to Invade Next?, will have its U.S. premiere at this year's festival, and he will also participate in one of our free HBO Director's Dialogues. This year's festival continues the tradition of revival screenings and special events, with a 15th anniversary tribute to the Coen Brothers' roots musical Fantasia, O Brother Where Art Thou?, screenings of classics from Brian De Palma and Akira Kurosawa, and a celebration of 25 years of The Film Foundation, Martin Scorsese's film preservation initiative. For more information, visit filmlink.org slash nyff. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for conversations from this year's festival. But in the meantime, let's head back to 2012 for Michael Moore in conversation with Richard Pena. Hi, I'm Film Comet digital editor Violet Luca. Want to know more about what's coming to a theater near you? Whether it's Ho Shao Shen's exquisite martial arts movie The Assassin, Denis Villeneuve's heart-pounding narco-gang nightmare Sicario, or the heart-rending gay marriage drama Freeheld starring Julianne Moore, the September-October issue of Film Comment* has you covered. Get your copy in print or digital for only $5.95.
1: Wow, looking at it today, I just kept on thinking, do we know more now, or do we know different, or is it seeing, I mean, I can remember being myself shocked by the, all the deindustrialization, which I kind of knew, but when you saw it, and now it just seems like this is, a, you know, we're way beyond this in a sense.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are. Um, we're in some deep shit. Um, and I made this film 20, 23 years ago, it came out, um, in the hopes that what we have now wouldn't happen. <clears throat> but I had a hard time at that time getting people to, to listen to it. Um, and it, uh, I have to say, uh, my wife is here in, in the back, and uh, <clears throat> it's very hard for us to watch this film still. In fact, we haven't watched in some time. The last time we tried to watch it, we were, some festival had us or whatever, and <clears throat> we lasted for about five minutes, and we had to leave. Uh, and uh, so five minutes into the film, my wife started crying again just now, uh, which I, mean, I had tears in my eyes, and I said, let's just try, and this, let's just try to get through this, you know, if we just, because uh, we can't, it's just, it's... uh it's so tragic on so many levels. I mean, when I made that film, there were still 50,000 people working in Flint for General Motors. 50,000. I mean, in it, Yes, in 89. Yeah. They lost 30,000 jobs. There were 50,000 left. There are 4,000 left now. So <clears throat> it is, um, you can get an, an app on your iPhone and listen to the Flint uh, police radio at night. Um, not that you'd want to do that, but, uh, it's, uh, we listen to it every now and then just because it's, it's so surreal, um, because it's just a non-stop, um, assault of words coming in over the radio about this happening, that happening, this person being shot, this person being kidnapped, this person being abused, this, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, um, it's just the worst. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I just, I, I, I don't know if you weren't here at the beginning, but I just wanted to thank you personally. Uh, I was nobody from Flint, Michigan. Um, I knew nobody in the movie business. I didn't have an uncle who was an agent. <laughs> I, I was on unemployment myself. I was getting $98 a week from the Michigan Employment Security Commission. And, um, and I, I uh, my wife and I, uh, we were living in D.C. at the time, and um, brought the film up, all the cans and the reels, up to you guys here at Lincoln Center. Um, it was like on August 1st, I think. It was it was the day that it was the day that Sex Lies and Videotape opened because it opened across the street at the old. was that the cinema stu- studio? Cinema Studio. And uh, so you guys watched it in here, or not here, but over. Over Magna. Right, while uh, while we watched uh, Soderbergh's first film, uh, and. Uh, you're selecting this film, um, you know, obviously not just changed my life, but gave someone like me who um, the public never hears from us, those of us who come from the working class. I have a high school education, that's it. Uh, You weren't supposed to hear from me (laughs) or anybody that looks like me. And the fact that I got to have um, that, is In such large part obviously due to you in that moment that night when you played it here at Alice Tully and um, at, at the end people stood and applauded. I remember Joanna uh, Koch uh, <laughs> Coming up to me afterwards saying um, I think the ovation went for like eight minutes and she said that's the record for the New York Film Festival she said, it, it was longer than Kurosawa's <laughs> and I said to her I don't know if that's a really a good thing to, I don't know but but it was it was it but the Warner Brothers people were in the audience that night and they, they could not believe people just would not sit down for eight minutes and uh, they walked out of it and you know they ended up it became the first documentary ever to receive a mass distribution by a Hollywood studio in multiplexes shopping mall cinemas uh, they put it in 1,300 theaters. It, that had never happened before. And well, when
1: they write the history of American documentary, they'll say the sort of age of documentary we're in began with Roger and me. That was really the film that sort of showed people not only that you can make a documentary that can play to a wide audience, but that you could make it in a very different, very personal way. So we um, owe a lot to you, Michael. Well,
2: well thanks for saying that. It was... <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, it was just was so amazing to me too because I didn't know anything about making a movie and I really had to Teach myself this and I mean, I love movies. I mean but.
1: if you can imagine it's hard to imagine, but if you were Now gonna make Roger and me or a film in Flint What would you do? What would you do different that you didn't do then or that you did do then?
2: Oh, wow, <clears throat> I wouldn't change a, a frame of this film first of all um, it uh, um, I'm I'm very proud of it, and, um, you know, it probably remains my favorite film of all the films I've made, maybe it's just because it was the first, and because I was, I had to learn to make a film while I was making this film, and I was um, taught by someone who gave me a couple of weeks, really, of his time. He came to Flint and showed me how to operate the camera and the sound, and I tell this story about him in, the, in my book that came out last fall, and, um, um, and you know, there was all this controversy after the film came out <coughs> about how I chose to make this film. And again, that was another thing that was very different. People were very used to a uh, very traditional documentary form. Everything is in chronological order and it runs just like that. And, and I never really liked documentaries. I really thought they felt like medicine. and I'd. I, I didn't know why one would go to a theater to see one and and I didn't want to make medicine I didn't want to make castor oil and so I thought I'm gonna Make something that I'd like to see on a Friday night in the movie theater that I could you know eat popcorn to and so And so I structured it in the way that um, I decided to structure it, to um, Tell the story I wanted to tell while main while making sure that every fact in the film was absolutely correct and and so uh, and of course, you know, Fox News and the right wing, I have to deal with them constantly on this stuff, but I really, I, I take a lot of care and concern about uh, the facts in my films because I wa- I'm trying to make a political argument, and if I screw up on any of that, then I'm not going to make, I'm going to lose the argument. So I'm like, I'm, I have so much invested in that. Uh, uh, it's, it's just very important to me. So really, it was, it was uh, um, I think people, now you know, they finally got used to, but, you know I was you know whenever you're the first at doing something you're gonna uh, and and so I was taking documentary into a different way of of an art form and and We were talking your people backstage or here beforehand. and It was just like an IMDB. It uh, it shows that Before Roger and me uh, in the history of film there were like four or five movies that it grossed a million dollars or more and then since Roger Me, after Roger Me, there have been 108 films that have grossed a million dollars or more, and so so I take a lot of personal pride in that that I was able to help kick the door open to get other uh, other documentary filmmakers through that door so that they would have their films would have that kind of exposure uh, to an to an audience.
1: And also, I mean, to just get away from that so-called you know myth of objectivity. I mean, you know, that was what was great. You know, for me about this was you were making an argument. You're saying, look at this. I and, think this sucks. This is terrible,
2: right? And I and I and I was not trying to cover it up by trying to pretend to be objective. I was actually admitting I'm very subjective. I am biased. Um, it doesn't mean I have a right to to. I mean, I have to get all the facts right, but then I present my opinion. In my opinion, I could be right or wrong. Uh, I mean, I think I'm right. It's my opinion, but I'm, I may not be right. You know. So, uh, but that was very. Di- if you remember, that was very difficult for people to sort of wrapped their heads around because we were so used to that other sort of, yes, the documentary, you know, you must tell one side of the, the, the other. In fact, I was, I'm a juror, I'm sorry about wearing the Tribeca Film Festival hat. Yeah, here, but, what about that? Uh, <laughs> I just. <laughs> you know what, actually, I'm a juror, I'm a juror this week at the Tribeca Film Festival for the documentaries, and so I was there and they, they were taking the picture of all the jurors and I had a Sundance hat on and they took the hat <laughs> off my head. They took the hat off my head and put this one on. <laughs> then I come here to the New York Film Festival i, wrote, I don't have enough hats for all this <laughs> but um um it 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 uh i don 't know what I was saying about that, but I just think documentaries uh hell uh, yeah, you know it it, uh, it it changed and it's uh I hope it 's been for the for the good uh oh, I do 't know what I was going to say I was I was watching a documentary there at the festival a couple days ago and, um, the director. Um you know, he, he had, it's about the people who uh, the Texas Board of Education, where they took Jefferson out of the textbooks. it's a really scary film it's, um, but uh, but he had a, he was given great access to the conservatives on the board, and they let him do they, everybody said it was so great that you were fair and you were showing the other side and, and I, said, I just thought sat there thinking, well, he's not really why he's doing it. He's like, I believe that you should let the other like the GM lobbyist, the more you can get the other side to talk the better. <laughs> And the less, you know, you don't need to, like, just keep repeating what you believe in, but you, but they'll make the case for you if you let them talk. But this whole idea of being fair in a document I mean, if I made a documentary about slavery, you know, would, would you or film comment or somebody say, now, Mike, you know, you didn't give the pro-slavery position on this. <laughs> you didn't give equal time to those, you know, are making a film about women's rights. You know, you left out the people who do, don't think women should be able to vote. Why aren't they in there? You know, I mean, sometimes... Yeah, well, I think we're all subjective people, we have our opinions, and some issues, I think, don't have two sides morally, uh, they have one side, and uh, I think it's okay to say that, and the more you can show the other side, that's good, but, uh, but I, why pretend that you're anything else?
1: Well, I, I think it goes along with that. Call it the myth of the liberal media—that somehow all our media is so liberal, and we have to, you know, safeguard against it. And you know, when you came out suddenly, look, there's an example, and people jumped on that. Right. Yeah, that's
2: yeah, that's true. And I and I've been a poster boy for Rush Limbaugh and and Fox News and all the conservative media. The having a tough time now. I know. Don't no, pick don't on him. I know. I know. Them. Right. But, <laughs> but I I you know for for a long time I said like, why are they picking on me? You know why are they after me? Why are they And then I you know I sort of I've kind of after I don't know 10 years it probably dawned on me that that what they're upset about I think is that um, those of us on the left have had a difficult time in the last 30 years reaching a wide mainstream American audience and I came along and was able to get my work my left work into the mainstream of middle America that Fucked them up, I think. It just like, how did the you know he's supposed to be over there with Noam Chomsky and everybody where nobody only the left you know it's the church of the left they all talk to each other, and now but I was talking to Flint, Michigan or Gary, Indiana or St. Louis, Missouri, and I think that was like holy shit we've got to do whatever we can to you know put the clamp down on this because uh, um, um, they were just too used to I think those of us of are my political persuasion just talking amongst ourselves, certainly after the 60s, after the Vietnam War.
1: What was the reaction internationally? I mean, I know the film played widely, but did you have a chance to actually go and show it to audiences in Europe or South America? And how did they they look at this? I mean, it's not the America they're used to. They were quite shocked.
2: And you know, what was very interesting is that because it was 89, we we did your festival in September, and then we were invited to the Leipzig uh, Film Festival in November. So my buddy Rod and I, we fly into Berlin, and the, the, I think it was the night before we landed, they started, the first people were chipping away on the wall, the very first, the very first night. And we just happened to be there, and we were because we were gonna drive to Leipzig from Berlin. We decided to stay a couple days in Berlin, because we were kinda early for the festival, and so we just we just went down there and got, they gave us hammers and chisels, and we were just like chiseling away on the wall with the very, you know, first group of people. But So, um, then, Three months later, the Berlin Film Festival showed the movie. And we were there for the, that night when, the, when they t- lifted the first uh, cement thing off the wall. And you were probably there too, I would assume, yeah. And, um, and they had screenings, in, remember, in East Berlin. And so I showed this film to people in East Berlin who were essentially going from communism to capitalism. And now th- this was like, this was supposed to be such a happy time. <laughs> And then I show them what capitalism brings you, and they're like, "Oh, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> what are I, those bits of the wall?" Well, <laughs> oh, you know, I remember saying to them, I said, you know, I said, actually, we're looking to you, to Eastern Europe, to invent the third way. You know, maybe that's what you what you need to do is. Uh, take those few things of capitalism that are good, you know, in terms of the you know, the the inventiveness of the individual that comes up with a light bulb or whatever and you know that uh, Respects that and but still, you know, don't lose your safety net for your people <laughs> because this is where they end up and uh and then we then we got invited to the Moscow to St. Petersburg, and then we, we showed the film there. And I just remember our whole Eastern European tour being a very depressing moment for the people in the audience, because <laughs> they were at the they were being so happy about what was uh, what was changing. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, I know I think that was uh, you know, and I, of course I, I had a very large foreign audience after that uh, for my films, and probably the largest. Uh, well, the largest box office wise was obviously Fahrenheit, but, uh, but uh, Bowling for Columbine, I think, uh, touched people more in other countries probably than any other film, because it's truly something nobody else in this world understands why we kill so many of our own people and what is our fascination with guns. And, um, and so I, when we traveled you know, with that film, I think that really, I really saw the, the, the people feeling just completely lost not understanding America.
1: Get some questions from all of you. Yes, right here. You, you, sir, you gentlemen, sorry. Questions about the financing for Roger and me. Uh, I didn't even know what that word meant. So <laughs> well, there was no
2: financing. There was a lot of people, right, giving us 25 or $50. I, um, I sold the, the house that I had my newspaper in. It was a four bedroom house. I got $27,000 for it. and put that into the movie. Um, um, I sued the magazine that, that fired me uh, in San Francisco, and won sixty thousand dollars from them. I put that all into the movie. We had bingo games in Flint, and we used the profits from the bingo games to put that into the movie, and um, and that was about it. And, and when I had a sort of a rough cut, the Flint Council for the Arts gave me like three thousand dollars. The Michigan Council for the Arts gave me eight thousand, um, and then the, the large, the only really large check was twenty thousand dollars. From the J. Roderick MacArthur uh, Foundation, not the Big MacArthur, but the Baby MacArthur uh, Foundation, and uh, that was pretty much it when you uh, name like you might have seen ed asner 's name there, but that 's just because he read about, he heard about the project and he sent us a check for two hundred dollars you know, we didn 't know who he was, I mean we knew who he was, but we had no contact with him, so we, put it, we thanked him in the you know in the credits so yeah that, that was about it. It cost us about um, one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars to make from beginning to end. And I was about another $200,000 in debt. Uh, for instance, Sound One down the street here, um, I couldn't afford to do the mix. And Bill Nisselson, who you, I'm sure you remember, no longer with us. Um, I, I, I took the film there one day. They, again, didn't know who I was. I asked them for a couple of hours. He brought Lee Dichter in, the great sound mixer of all of Woody Allen's and a whole bunch of other films. And they sat there, and they were in tears watching it. And they, at the end of it, they said, we'll mix this film for free for you. And it's a twelve. At that time, it was like a twelve thousand dollar thing. I just I couldn't believe it. So as soon as I got the money from Warner Brothers, I like wrote them a big check. You know, and I had I did that for all the people that helped me and Irwin and, I think was also and Irwin. Duart was incredible. Irwin Young, um, I just kept de- developing film for me, and um, and I didn't know who I was, but he saw the he saw what was there, and he said his. Father was an old socialist or communist or whatever, and he just really was proud to be part of this. And so he so he developed the film for me over there in West 55th Street. So it was, um, we were very lucky to have a lot of angels
1: that, uh, uh, that helped us out over the years. Yes, over here, sir. Did the film have any effect on Roger Smith's tenure at GM? That's a good, I don't
2: know, I, that's a good question. I've always wondered that because um, uh, about, Five months after the film was released, uh, he retired, and, um, and I thought it was a little early, but I don't know if, whether it was because of the whole, I mean, GM, they knew I was making this film, obviously, by the time I was finishing it, and they even sent somebody to the Telluride Film Festival, because that was the very first place we were going to show it, and, um, and from what I heard from people at GM years later is that the, their, their scout. Phoned back and said "Um, eh, don't worry about this. It's just a documentary, and it's not that well made and (laughs) (laughs) Things are out of focus So um, so they didn't they didn't really see it coming they weren't they weren't really ready for it when it hit and I think that um, that that gave us certainly the the leg up to not uh, have them but uh, so, Roger Smith, yes. Yeah. So, no, he, he retired. I never got to meet him. I almost ran into him once at Detroit Metro Airport. Uh, he got off a plane. I got on, uh, but uh, missed him, and uh, fortunately, he's passed away. So,
1: What about the UAW? Was there ever any union reaction?
2: Yes. Early on, the union did not like the film because I essentially say in the film that the union's been bed with management, and they haven't really been – Doing what they need to do to, to fight for this they couldn't they couldn 't see the writing on the wall that GM was going to pull out and um, and that that business model that GM was developing throw people out of work but still but then, and then wonder who 's going to buy now, nobody asks who 's going to buy the cars once you throw all the middle class out of work who 's going to buy your cars nobody and so i 'm like i'm you know during when the film came out i 'm like i 'm trying to like give this lesson in capitalism like. <laughs> You know, guys, you you have to create your you create your consumer base by paying your workers a good amount of money because what workers do is they spend that money, and then you get to make more money, uh, and then it, but the whole thing was broken, and and it took another 20 years, but then you know GM went under. Um, we they, the Tribeca Film Festival sent us over in a one of their Tribeca cars.
1: Um, you don't have those, by we the way. Don't have yeah, that's. <laughs> We give our filmmakers Subway fare, and they're they're happy to they're happy to accept it. Let me tell you.
2: <laughs> no, they treat everybody really. This is the, one of the greatest honors of your life is to be selected by this festival. But they they sent us over in a Chevy Suburban, and um, and my wife was saying, "Wow, this is they've really improved this because it used to be a real piece of junk, and uh, nothing was rattling, and the dome light worked, and everything, and and." Uh, he said, "Yeah." He said, "Yes." Yeah, since the uh, you know the government took over, they've been making better cars. I said, "Well, do you realize what you just said? <laughs> the government involvement actually give has given us better cars that are now selling better. Uh, what does that say about free enterprise? Of course, they don't really believe in free enterprise. They they don't want competition. They would they would prefer to be the only car company and have the old Soviet model, where you know you have only one newspaper in town, one car company in the country, you know, fewer airlines ch- that you know they're trying to." it's all been collapsed into us having fewer and fewer choices uh, because they don't really like competition and, and free
1: enterprise. Questions, let me see. Question is, has Michael ever considered doing a film that would show the other side? What happens when GM brings their factory to Mexico or Honduras or wherever and what goes on there?
2: And, and she mentioned that she's from Colombia. Okay. Our collective apologies uh, to the government and the people of Colombia. Yeah. No, I know. I know. But, but there was, it was a moment to, for Columbia to shine. Our president was there. There's this great summit. Nobody ever talked about the summit or anything. And, and sadly, we got distracted. But um, uh, no, I, I, I have not made that uh, film, uh, but I did do that a lot on my TV show. I had two TV shows in the 90s. One was called TV Nation. The other was called The Awful Truth. And the very first episode of TV Nation was on NBC. Um, I um, In the first episode I fired everybody on the show And then moved the show to Reynosa, Mexico And, um, And I got I hired cameramen for 50 cents an hour And joke writers for 20 cents an hour And and things like that and we produced the whole show with mexican labor uh, from uh, Reynosa. Uh, so I mean I have and I've done many other things like that uh, because I, I care about that and I remember us being told at that time 20 30 years ago, it's good that these we're building these factories there because in 30 years Mexico's going to look like the United States. The standard of living will be it'll be just like Bloomfield Hills and and uh, of course we know that is not what happened. So
1: Are the TV nations available on DVD? They are
2: not. um, not. uh, There's a lot of rights issues with the music and stuff, which is too bad. But but so great, Michael. Well, thank you. No, I'm so proud of if you actually somebody has been surreptitiously putting them up on YouTube. I have no idea who's doing this, but it's um, it's it's it's, so you have if you want to just go on YouTube, you can see a lot of these. of these episodes of, of TV Nation and the things that we did from the, you know.
1: That's a shame. That was really, this was really yeah. terrific. Other questions? Yes, ma'am, right here. What do we do next, Michael?
2: Uh, yes, I have been very supportive of Occupy Wall Street, and it, I'll tell you, it's been one of the happiest years for me to see after, you know, 20-some years of making films about corporate America and Wall Street and the banks. And my last film, which you premiered, here uh, at Ellis Tully, um, Capitalism, A Love Story, where the film ends with me going down to Wall Street and wrapping crime scene tape around the New York Stock Exchange and walking away and saying that's my last movie until I, until I see you watching it rise up, uh, I can't do this by myself and I'm not going to, you know, I'm gonna go have a life. So, um, and I really thought, I'd have like a good five to 10 years <laughs> to just sort of fuck off and do, you know, write a write a musical, or you know, join the Ice Capades or something. I, and uh, and man, this uh, this so when this happened back in September, I I tell you, it was just I've just uh, been so happy and supportive of it and part of it and uh, and um, um, and what I think people can do is I think um, you know politically right now I mean this year we have to get the, the house has to get out of the hands of the Republicans the Senate has to stay in the hands of the Democrats. Uh, Obama has to be reelected although I have many criticisms about him and I wish he'd done a lot more a lot faster and he pissed away a lot of I think good opportunities at the beginning when we had control of the House and Senate uh, but nonetheless uh, uh, don't underestimate the fact that Romney can win he's from my state I know I, th- th- they and we live we're Americans and I'm telling you, it's the most amazing thing is 35% approval rating, and yet he's pulling 47%. So clearly, people are of mind that they are going to vote against Obama, no matter who the Republican nominee is. And the polls are showing it's very close, so I would, I would take it very seriously. Um, and I think the things you can do in your, own, in your daily life is just to, you know, to talk to people, talk politics. I mean, this is one thing, if, if you're from another country, you've noticed this if you've been in America for a while, how rarely at a bar or over dinner or whatever, we have political conversations. It, it's 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 a very you know. Whereas if you travel to other countries, it's just a, you know, 12-year-olds will start talking politics with you. So it's um, so I think it's important to do that and, and um, you know use credit unions instead of the five top banks and uh, and just think of all the little things that you can do in your daily life to sort of <clears throat> wean ourselves off this uh, this this uh, Wall Street um, thing. So
1: yes, sir. Pets or Meat, which was kind of a little bit of a sequel to Roger and Meat, which was actually at the New York Film Festival, and uh, Michael's appearance on the Phil Donahue show.
2: Thank you for going to see it in high school and sneaking in to see it because they rated it R, which really bummed us out. Every one of my movies has been rated R except Sicko, and um, I don't understand that. Uh, um, The bunny sequence? It's the bunny sequence and the woman being evicted at the end saying, motherfucker. And um, and that did it. Uh, you know, in Fahrenheit, it's showing the destruction of dead bodies with their bombs that we blew people up. So, um, anyways, and and uh, and what was the problem? You couldn't get you couldn't convince a date to go see it, or? Yeah. Okay, no. I, I want to tell you. We, if I say something here, it'll just stay here, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> promise. <laughs> First time I ever talked to George Clooney this is like years and years and years ago um, he said to me he said I got to tell you something he said I use Roger and me for dating and I said what do you mean he said he said well you know when I'm like interested in somebody and I'm thinking oh, you know, they might be nice to have a girl as a girlfriend or to date or whatever the, the, I always on the first if not the first definitely by the second date they have to sit and watch Roger and me with me if they get it Then there's another date. If they don't get it, (laughs) it's over. (laughs) It was just, (laughs) it was kind of the coolest thing to hear. Um, It's not exactly two thumbs up, but it's kind of something. I don't know. But it was uh, um, Pets or Meat. uh, I did do a a half hour sequel. It's only been here and on PBS. And uh, we are going to release that at at some point. Uh, We did a follow up about four years after I made the film and uh what was the other part of the question um the Phil Donahue Oh Phil Donahue Phil Donahue came to Flint and so he did two full days there two full shows with me on a stage and 2000 people in the audience and uh it was about uh probably 3 quarters pro me and in the quarter that were against me the the country club people and the chamber of commerce and all that were very vocal and screaming and it was kind of a it was very much very chaotic uh, but it's a fascinating I don't know if it's on YouTube but it's fascinating to watch
1: time for a couple more yes gentlemen the back I'll, t-shirt. T-shirt.
2: I'll answer shorter so he can yeah. get people in here.
1: t-shirt yes you right
2: this audience
0: member explained that they have just started shooting a documentary on ovarian cancer and they wondered if Moore had any advice for a first-time filmmaker
2: well Thank you for doing that, first of all. Um, secondly, nobody wants to see that movie. I mean, I'm, um, I don't mean to be um, harsh about this, but let me suggest just tweaking it a bit. I mean, I assume you're making it because you want people to see it, right? Right, but, the, but, the re, but I'm going to say, because again, if we were sitting in Paris right now, uh, or, or Berlin, uh, or London, or Dublin, Um, they don't have this thing where uh, people put off going to the doctor that we have. And a lot of it in our country is because people can't afford it. They don't have health insurance. Or they do have health insurance and their health insurance won't approve This procedure or this thing, and they've got to fight with you. Everyone here knows this, right? You either yourself or your family member or a neighbor. And I think that's the that's you're right, if it's caught soon enough, it's it's it, you can live. And and so, I would really focus on that one question. And I don't think it's just because people are, oh, I don't, you know, I feel something here, I want to think it's something else and i don't and that's true i mean that is human nature you want to hope for the best if you heard a loud bang right now you wouldn't think it was a gun going off you would, your brain would start to go oh that was a car misfiring or a tire or something you know we we, we always you know that though that was just a little plane that wasn't an attack that first plane that went into the tower even though we who live here you know 8 years before that we've only we've only had one terrorist incident of foreign of a foreign entity blowing something up here in the city and that was at that building yet still when we saw the heard about the first plane most of us didn't think that was anything other than an accident it's like it's, I just I'm just always amazed at how the human psyche really wants to look at the bright side of life and not because you if you go that other way it gets dark and you don't want to go there and but so I don't know if this is making any sense to you, but I just, I, I, I think that um, for, the, for the people who are afraid and don't go, I, you know, scaring people, I never think that really works. I, 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 I think that you're right to get the information out there. You could live if you catch it in time, but I would really focus on how many women die in this country every year because they can't afford to get the treatment or afraid that they're going to get socked with some big bill. I mean, the Congress did their own study of this last year, and they said approximately 45,000 people uh, a year die in this country simply because they don't have health insurance. That's the only thing that has killed them because they've put off going to the doctor and it's too late. They roughly, they think, about 45,000, uh, whereas the number in France or Canada or anyplace else is zero. Uh, nobody in Canada says, uh, I don't really can't afford to go to the doctor. It's just a crazy idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other well the other part of this too is is that we have an enforced ignorance in our society that starts with our schools and how little money and effort and attention we pay to them. And essentially, our system is structured to keep people as stupid as possible for as long as possible. And if you can keep people ignorant, it's easier to manipulate them with fear and blame of something other, whatever. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, we're ignorant of science, we're ignorant of biology. We're ignorant of a lot of things, and when you don't when you don't know things, and you haven't learned that in school, uh, you know that's something they should be teaching in school. But I, we've spent too much time on this. But I, I thank you for attempting to do this, and good luck with it. Thank
1: you. Time for a couple more? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Hi, I'm from Rio de this viewer is from Rio de Janeiro, and big fan of Michael's work, and wants to know: Is while he's shooting his films, how does he deal with his own emotions? Because obviously he feels for these issues and for the people and how does that affect his work as a filmmaker that's a that's a great question
2: I it it affects it a lot I have a hard time uh, making these movies I I do not enjoy them I dread doing them Um, I don't really say this publicly too much but I don't uh, I remember when we started making sicko and we went on the internet and we asked people to send us their horror stories of dealing with insurance companies and Oh my God, we got so much stuff from people who are dying. Please help us, please help us. And we went and we were just trying to do things and we were actually writing checks to some people. We, we just, because how can you go and film somebody and they're dying and that just let, let, yeah. so we just, all of us on that film, we really had a real bad, it had a bad effect on us, uh, it, uh, personally, you know. Um, making this film obviously was very difficult. We filmed that eviction on, um, during the day on Christmas Eve and, um, We all went back in the van, the crew and me, and and everybody just broke down and started crying. Because we tried to, the woman said she owed $150. So everyone reached in their pockets. We came up with $150. We said to the sheriff, here, let her stay. It's friggin' Christmas. Um, Friggin' wasn't used back then. And and he said, "Uh, if you don't put that money away, I'm going to have to arrest you for trying to bribe uh, me. And so we put the money away he threw the christmas tree and the presents out and we went in the van we started crying and it's like and so just as a, on a lark to lift people's spirits i said hey you know we've got the equipment for the rest of the day why don't we run down to detroit and do one more scene at the gm building or you know it's probably closed because it's christmas eve let's just go down there and we'll shoot something come on let's let's go get roger on christmas yeah okay so we get in the car we drive an hour down Detroit. we pull up there's all these TV trucks there, and they're getting ready to, keep to give the speech, this Christmas speech. I, can't, I was like, wow. So we walked in with Channel 7 News in Detroit, and, and, uh, and, <laughs> and I only had one roll of film, 10 minutes of 16 millimeter film. And I said, to, I said to the cameraman, he went and he's gonna go set up with the other cameras on the, on the riser. I said, okay, look, they, they handed out the speech he was gonna give to all the press beforehand. So I got to read the speech, so I marked it, and I said, okay, you film this, 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 and don't miss Dickens. <laughs> 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 and then when you're done with all that, leave at least 90 seconds, because I'm going to make a run for him. You know, I was going to, like, lunge uh, toward him. And, and so he films it, and he... Um, um, uh, He's done, Smith comes down, I start, and you see these two guys. They're actually the security, and you can't see it on camera, but they've locked my arms. They're holding me back. Um, and I got as close as I did to him, that what you saw. But it, we, we got something incredible that we didn't, you know, and it kind of, it dealt with our own emotional thing that day. But then we, we drove back to Flint there, now it's, it's six o'clock at night. Let's get some shots of that factory that's the last shot in the film, and they were tearing it down. A bunch of ambulances and uh, police cars go by us. whole line of them. Like, wow, what the hell is going on? Well, let's go check this out. So we get in the car. We follow them to a restaurant about two miles away where the Buick um, executives, of the, when I say executives, that's it, it, a highfalutin word, but for Flint it just means the foreman and the, you know, the, the white-collar uh, people, uh, were having their Christmas party. And... The I think it was the vice president of labor relations or whatever I don't I forget what exactly what his title was, but he had just gone into the party with a 357 Magnum, blew his girlfriend's head off, and then ran by, back out into the parking lot, put the gun in his mouth, and blew his head off. And we got there, and there's this carnage. And outside the restaurant, they had a loudspeaker with, a, with a, like a really tinny loudspeaker playing, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas. So we, were, you know, we, we filmed all this and, and it was, I, we decided not to end the film with it because it was just like, it was so depressing and we were so depressed by the whole thing. And we d- I didn't want you to leave the theater depressed. I want you to leave angry. I want you to leave like feeling like you should do something. That's why a lot of the humor is in the film, because it's there just as a, a release valve on the pressure cooker, because if you just pound people for two hours with all this sadness, I do not you leave paralyzed, and you leave thinking there's nothing I can do. I don't want you to leave that way. I want you to leave thinking that you can do something. You do have some power. Uh, so... Um, so yeah thanks for asking that question we, it's, um, it, does, it does affect us a lot
1: Michael I think that's all we have time for but okay. before you go we yes. have a present for you Oh, the, <laughs> oh. <laughs> the hat please wear your Film Society of Lincoln Center hat in good health Oh, and it fits <laughs> thank you very much Michael, thank you everybody thank you for coming, coming. Thank and, you and thank you great. Richard
2: for your, all your years here